Good morning. It's Wednesday, June the 9th. This is show number 170. Here we go. Okay, hi everyone. Um, it's uh, it's nice to be here. This is my first DEF CON. I'm used to going to academic conferences, and uh, the first thing I was told when I showed up here and I uh, presented myself as a speaker, I was wearing khaki pants, and I was told you can't speak like that. This is a hacking conference, and you have to change into jeans. And so I did. I followed the rules, and I changed into jeans. What's really weird for me about DEF CON is I'm really not used to being the least geeky person around, because in most of the circles that I go, I'm the geek. But this is a whole other level here, and I'm enjoying it a lot. Um, as the intro introduction mentioned, I'm the director of the Health and Medical Security Lab at Hopkins. Uh, when you're a professor at a university, uh, you get to create your own lab and you get to name it. And I love boats and ships and I wanted a lab that was like HMS lab, right? Does anybody know, you guys look like an educated crowd here, what, what HMS stands for, why ships are like the HMS this? That's right, Her Majesty's ships. So you won't find American ships. We name our ships after uh, presidents and states, but a lot of the British ships are the HMS this and that, so I'm the HMS lab. It's a health and medical security lab. And let me give you a little bit of background about how um, the work that I've done, how I got there, and uh, that'll kind of segue into the technical work that we're going to present and have a co-presenter that I'll introduce in a minute too. So I am a professor at Johns Hopkins, and most of you probably know Hopkins as a medical school and a medical facility and a hospital. In fact, when I meet people socially, like the the parents of my kids' friends, they just assume I'm a medical doctor. They'll come talk to me about their ailments and things like that. It's just, you know, if you're at Johns Hopkins, there's this kind of force to work on medical stuff. So I started out at Hopkins in 2003 working on electronic voting security. I did that for about seven or eight years. But when you're at Hopkins, there's this sucking that happens towards you. I'm not saying like we suck, I'm saying like it pulls you, like the Ross Perot kind of sucking, that, that it pulls you into it and you have to work on uh, medical stuff because the doctors will come around and say, hey, I've got this problem, can you help me? And they're medical record systems and I'm a security guy. And so pretty soon I found myself working on medical stuff. Created the Health and Medical Security Lab, started training up students, um, and we started looking at all kinds of things. One of the seminal things that happened in this field is a paper at the IEEE Security and Privacy Conference. We call it the Oakland Conference. It's the number one rated academic conference uh, by some of my colleagues, Kevin Fu, Yoshi Kono, and it was where they had taken a defibrillator, wrapped it in a bunch of meat so it would simulate being inside of a person, and launched a bunch of attacks against it. And it kind of woke up the industry because the press got very interested in this and it just got a very high profile. And so the field, I felt like the field of health and medical security, at least for academics, really took off after that paper. And so I applied for grants and was part of a group that got a $15.5 million grant from the ONC, which is the Office of the National Coordinator in Health and Human Services, to do health and medical security research. When that project ended, we got a $10 million grant from NSF to do the same. And we worked on projects like encrypting of medical records using attribute-based encryption, and we used um, performing role-based access control via attribute-based encryption. That's the kind of stuff that I like, so I am a geek. I do, I do qualify for that. Um, and we also looked at medical devices. And in my lab, I had students that we were getting our hands on medical devices. They were uh, flashing the, the, the ROM on there and then analyzing the firmware. And so we developed a set of expertise and skills in that and uh, published a lot of papers. And then some of those students from that lab 
uh, came to work for me after when I started Harbor Labs, which is my company. And Harbor Labs started because I was getting approached by a lot of medical device companies once I started publishing in this area, saying, you know, we would like some help some consulting help with the security of our systems. And I have all these really smart students graduating and light bulb went off. I said, why don't I start a company? We'll do this type of thing professionally. Um, and so that's what we do. So that's the long-winded introduction um, of my background. And Mike Rishannon is here. Put your hand up. Um, Mike was a PhD student of mine who finished his PhD in the HMS lab and is now the director of medical security at Harbor Labs, and he and I are going to co-speak today. So I also brought him here in case you guys ask any hard questions, direct them to him. He's more likely to be able to answer them. So um, this is kind of the high-level outline of the talk. I'm going to talk about um, what happens when you have a medical device and you care about the security of it? Uh, and what should you do if you're building a medical device and you want to get through uh, regulatory uh, certification, you want to make sure that your device is actually secure? And what I'd like to do is base the talk on a tool that we built and show you the various steps that this tool can take you through. And then Mike will take you into some of the case studies of actual projects we worked on with clients who built medical devices and ran into hiccups when they tried to get certification for them and show you like how we help them solve those problems. So um, I like to ask the audience who knows what things are because that shows me the audience is alive. So who knows what a bomb is, B-O-M? Wow, okay, we have an audience that is way above the level that I expected for this talk. Um, for those of you that didn't uh, raise your hands, it's a bill of materials. And why is a bomb important? Well, let me get into talking about a firmware. So if we're looking at a medical device, the software that runs it, the logic behind it, is going to be in a firmware file. And if you're in a company that builds these things, which I think many of you are, you know that you can have a team that's building the software and then you have someone on the team that puts something in there and then they leave the team and somebody else comes in. There's dynamic kind of flow of people through the development of a project that lasts many years. And there may not be anyone in the organization that actually knows everything that's in this firmware. Because a firmware image, you know, it's usually a Linux distribution. It's got a lot of open source packages in there. It's got libraries. Somebody finds a tool and they say, this would be a great tool in our firmware. There's a web server in there. They put that in the, in the firmware. And then the firmware is kind of a, a living and breathing thing. And if you go to get certified for the medical device, uh, the regulators are going to say, OK, what's your bill of material? And you may not know. You may not know everything that's in there. And so one of the things that we did is uh, built a tool that will automatically extract. It'll unpack a firmware binary and automatically extract all of the uh, materials that are in there, all of the software that the firmware uses. And that's actually not as easy as you might think. Because you're talking about binaries. And the binaries may not have necessarily a string that has the name of the package that you're using or the version number. And so we used um, all the material available at our disposal, both external to the firmware and inside the firmware, and did some fuzzing matching, and came up with what I think is a pretty good system for figuring out what are all the pieces that are inside of this firmware. And why does that matter from a security perspective? Well. There's a national vulnerability database that has these common vulnerability and exposures, which are called CVEs, that are vulnerabilities that are known for various software packages. So let's say that your firmware in this medical device has package X. It's a software package that does something that the firmware wanted to do. It's not something that was developed by the manufacturer. It was something open source that they found. And version 3 of uh, product X has a serious security problem in it, and it has a CVE in the National Vulnerability Database. And so what the tool can do is when it goes through and unpacks the firmware and it finds that Pagic X, I'm sorry, that package X version 3 is in there, it can say, aha, there's a CVE associated with this firmware. And if that thing gets upgraded someday to version 4, maybe there's no CVE for that because the problem was patched. And so it's important to get a look into a firmware to be able to know what are the CVEs associated with this firmware. Now, if, let's see how big this is coming out on here. One of the things that you can have in, um, when you're trying, for example, to get a medical device uh, through certification is there can be disqualifying problems. Like, for example, if you're using 
a weak algorithm. This says weak algorithm detected, and that has a CVSS score. CVSS is the common vulnerability scoring system, I think, and that is a standardized way that um, the industry takes certain problems and scores them. And so this is something that you can identify in a firmware file and say, uh-oh, you know, there's something here that's going to disqualify me from passing. I need to fix that. I need to put something better in there. And so here you can see that you, the tool can look through and see all the various CVEs and all the packages. And this is what we call the pre-market CVEs. That is, you package up your firmware, you run this through it, you sell your device, and you, you get your score. It takes the worst score of all the CVSS scores that are found in the device and gives you that as your overall score for the firmware. However, a firmware file, believe it or not, in terms of its security, is a living, breathing thing. It's not static. Why is that? Well, imagine that you put out your firmware and it uses Library X version 3, like I told you before. And you're the developer of this firmware, so you're like, oh, there's a, there's a security flaw in package X version 3. I'm going to swap out and put in version 4 in there. And now there's not a security flaw. So the, the product is out for a while. Everything's going great. And then some DEF CON researcher looks at product X version 4 and finds a really serious vulnerability that nobody knew about. And so a CVE is issued. And now you're sitting there with a package a firmware package using that version 4 that is believed to be pretty secure, it's got a really good CVSS score, and it's actually not, okay? And so what's needed is a way to constantly check the CVEs. Whoops, let me, uh, got a little ahead of myself. Uh, to constantly check the CVEs of all the packages to see if there are new ones. But what our tool does is every night it downloads the NVD database and then looks at all the packages and all the firmware that people have analyzed and see, is there a new CVE for one of these things? Let me tell you another way that your CVSS score can be misleading and where you need to stay on top of it. One of the packages is to look at, at crypto to look at the various settings, the algorithms, the parameters of the crypto that's being used in the firmware package. And one of the checks is made to see if a certificate is expired. If the certificate's not expired, that's not going to hurt your score. But what happens is time moves forward and the certificate is expired. And so if you don't keep on top of it and you don't keep checking it, you could end up with a package that's got security problems that, that you don't know about. Um, so let me now, um, before I hand it over to Mike, um, he's going to talk about a couple, I think three or four examples, how many? Three examples of uh, actual uh, security work that we did with medical device manufacturers with some lessons learned from it. And the first one is about patch management. I just want to say a couple words about patch management. You all know what patch management is. It's the ability to uh, take a software package and get new patches to download for them. And there's always the question of when do you patch, right? And is the patch going to break my software? Because I've got a system that works really well, and now the vendor issues a patch. And you have to ask yourself the trade-off between, well, if I don't patch, I'm vulnerable to this vulnerability that the patch addresses, and everybody now knows about it because there's been a patch. But if I do patch, it might break my system. It might actually introduce new vulnerabilities. And so system administrators have the unenviable task of figuring out how to manage patches and when is the right time to patch. If you think that that's difficult, consider a paper, um, I believe it was authored out of David Wagner's lab a couple of years ago in one of the academic security conferences where they talk about, I think the title of the paper was something like automatic exploit generation from patches. And so think about what's going on here. You've got a software package and somebody finds a vulnerability so the vendor issues a patch and releases it. What this, what this tool does, it's a security tool, but it's one that hackers could have as well or could have built and not told anyone, um, is it looks at the patch and based on what the patch is doing and based on the original binary, reverse engineers the vulnerability and then builds an exploit to take advantage of that vulnerability you know, in milliseconds. It's all fully automated. You take a patch and the output of their tool is an exploit that takes advantage of the vulnerability that the patch was addressing. Now you really don't have a lot of time if you've got like an online system to get that patch in there really quickly. Okay, so with that, um, uh, I'll hand it over to Mike.
right. Thanks, Avi. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm going to talk about some war stories, as it were, uh, working with some of our clients uh, with respect to three different scenarios. So Avi gave a great introduction to patch management. Um, in this particular case, we were working with a medical device manufacturer. Uh, they were going, it, it's a class three device. Uh, so this is, you know, it has the potential to cause great patient harm. And they were going through a PMA evaluation. Uh, so that's working directly with the FDA to review their protocol, to see if all risks are mitigated. And this includes cybersecurity risks, of course, because we're cybersecurity experts. And that's why we were working with said client. Now, what had happened is when they approached us, uh, they described their current patch management. And so uh, let's go ahead and diagram this out. Uh, and just note, I'm using medical device here sort of arbitrarily. We love and respect our clients. I would never use their names, so please don't ask. <laughs> cool. All right, so the original process, we have medical device. Uh, it's sending out a patch request. You'll note that there is this manufacturer's CDN. So this is a public cloud. I'll oftentimes interchangeably say AWS because it's typically the cloud that I work with and prefer. Uh, so it, we'll have more details in terms of why that actually matters in a bit. So medical device makes a patch request, uh, goes to the, the cloud, and the cloud is going to send a patch. Well, it's an unsigned patch. Huh. So what could be possibly go wrong with an, un an unauthenticated patch? Well, uh, I wish the text didn't overlap, but it's subject to tampering, right? And uh, in this particular case, when we're working with the manufacturer, we had to think about what the threat model is and who are the attackers, right? So in this particular patch request, I haven't even say, said if it is a secure and authenticated channel. So let's imagine that it's not TLS to begin with. Well, if you have a passive eavesdropper, what's going to happen? You're going to see the raw bytes. And uh, as Avi had alluded to, uh, when I go about a security analysis, the first thing I'm going to look at is, well, if I could capture some of those patches, I'm going to find out what libraries you're changing. I'm going to find out what binaries you're actually changing and updating. And that will inform how I do and perform my analysis to break your device. And let's not be fooled, any attacker is going to do the same thing. Now, uh, another issue with this is, is let's just to assume that the next more powerful attacker is an active attacker. Well, an active attacker can modify, jam, or drop this traffic, right? And so this becomes problematic because that, that sort of higher level of an attacker, if they can just change bytes in that patch, uh, they've effectively controlled the software that's going to be delivered to your system. If your particular medical device doesn't actually verify a signature on this particular patch, well, then you're going to install it haphazardly and be very happy, and lo and behold, you're running a code that an attacker directly controls. I should also mention, I mean, we're talking about patches here, but it is the case oftentimes that this could be an entire firmware, and so it's not just some of the functionality. And if anyone doesn't believe me, if anyone has like Windows 10, for example, and your update process is like 20 gigs, it's because it's putting the whole entire operating system on there again. And so this is, uh, this is, this is pretty big. And so what we have to do, we have to talk to the manufacturer and say, all right, well, what do you guys care about, right? And uh, we, of course, mentioned this issue. We say, well, do you care about confidentiality? Like, uh, you could potentially have IP in this firmware that, for this device. And they said, you know, we're not too concerned about our IP, which is a weird statement, but it was fine. Uh, but what they did say is, yes, being actively able to modify is a big, big problem. How would you guys uh, go about solving this? And this is where we start collaborating together. All right, so first solution we come up with, uh, we sort of brainstorm through. Again, we have our patch request. Uh, this time, let's just assume this is TLS, and we'll get into that for a second. So we at least have a secure channel between, say, medical device and the cloud. And in the cloud, uh, what's happening now is that uh, the cloud will have that patch pre-existing somewhere. So if this is, if this is AWS, it would be an S3, for example. Uh, what the cloud's going to do, the cloud actually uh, can access a hardware security module. And so for people that don't know HSMs, I'll do the brief 101 as fast as I possibly can. Crypto device, tamper-proof, tamper-evident, uh, secure key generation with random number generator that's been uh, FIPS certified. If you're an academic like me, you might really not put too much clout into FIPS. Everyone else is from the industry. You love FIPS because people and regulators tell you it's good, and of course it is. It, the appropriate algorithms, the appropriate ciphers, the appropriate key sizes, and make sure you don't make any funny mistakes. No one wants to see you implement a Caesar cipher because that's not crypto, you will be broken. And so this hardware security module exists. Typically, they're clustered, which gives you a great benefit in that if one fails, you have encrypted contents elsewhere. 
because uh, if you delete, say, private key, for example, which is non-extractable, if you lose a hardware security module, well, guess what? You've just lost the ability to perform any of these uh, signing operations again, and you have to rebootstrap your system. So all of this is great. I thought this was fantastic. Well, yes, use the cloud. You should use hardware security modules. And so we send a signed patch, and we look at the medical device, and we say, oh, no, guess what? This is still subject to tampering. Guess why? Uh, we were talking to the, the great uh, FDA reviewers and regulators, and I'm not saying great, just kind of cheeky. They really are super smart people to work with. And one of them had mentioned, like, well, all right, where's your trust boundary? I'm like, well, you know, I trust the cloud. Like, I don't trust the cloud. <laughs> all right, well, you're the regulator, and I believe you. I, too, do not trust the cloud right now. And so we reworked the solution based on this dialogue because it made a lot of sense. And in terms of security, it's going to bolster the security. So then we'll come up with our next sort of brainstorming approach. Again, medical device, do a patch request. Uh, we don't trust the cloud anymore. So what we're going to do, my big head, I'm sorry, I'm very tall. Uh, we're going to generate a private and public key pair. We're going to do that locally during the manufacturing process. Uh, this is a secured network. It's within our trust boundary. And what's great about it is you can still use hardware security modules. They're like $25,000, and usually, I don't know, medical device manufacturers have a ton of money to throw away, so I love saying, yeah, you should get that one. Uh, and that's like precisely what they did. They did the secure key generation, their side, they use the private key in that secured network manufacturing environment. Uh, they can sign a patch, uh, and they can upload the patch and the, sign, the signature to their content delivery network, which is the cloud. So great. So these two things are existing in AWS, and we pulled out sort of our, from our trust boundary that cloud. We sent the signed patch across. We thought we were good. Uh, lo and behold, uh, if you think about the process and during the brainstorming process, well, you know, you have an authenticated patch, but the problem here is that, well, we don't have a knots. We don't have a timestamp. We don't have any uniqueness. And the reason this matters is, well, you've opened yourself up to uh, a replay attack, right? And so there are a number of ways to mitigate this, and some of them aren't even security. I'll just blatantly tell you that, and I can tell you what that particular solution is, because you can combine it with actual security, and it works well. Uh, and so the, the scenario, let me just play it out this way, right? Uh, if I were an active attacker, not even active, maybe I'm an eavesdropper, and I see a patch uh, that's put out in like 2006, I saved that patch. I know that uh, at, at some point, even that patch is going to have some vulnerabilities inside of it. So some software gets old. Software ages like milk. Go figure. Uh, I wait, and I see patch happens five years later. And I see exactly what changed, and I look at the old patch, and I go, oh, well, these binaries was also changed there. I have this entire thing. Well, if there's no replay protection mechanism, what's to stop me from attacker as to replaying that original patch, overwriting the good one, and putting the system back into a bad state? Now, I won't lie to you, that, that scenario may be a bit contrived, and the reason is because you can implement controls inside the medical device that say, all right, well, you're signed. I need one of those bytes to actually specify what the firmware version is, and I will never downgrade. That's a reasonable approach, and that's one thing that we did build in, but at the same time, we wanted to go ahead and mitigate this particular risk as well. So we end up with the next patch process, patch request to the cloud, still doing our on-premise signing and uploading a signature and patch. Uh, and then we're sending a signed uh, uh, patch and or firmware and a timestamp, which is also signed. I'll talk, we're missing some text on there, but I'll explain. And now we're authenticated with a nonce, and this gives us a, a better security uh, implementation that we, than we had before. Now, I said there's something missing, and let me just walk over here real quick, so that way when the purist asks me my, the questions and I say, well, dude, you messed up, how'd you sign that? Uh, one approach that we can take, we have the on-premise signing of the patch or the firmware, we still have hardware secure modules that exist in the cloud. And so this is a semi-trusted environment. I won't say that it's like untrusted, because for example, you know, you're putting the patches in here to begin with, so you have to have some trust or some notion of trust. So what we could do, we can have, yet again, another symmetric or asymmetric key pair, excuse me, uh, and we will go ahead and sign the inner payload, which is signed itself, with an outer payload, bacon that timestamp ship that off to the medical device, and what happens? Well, you verify the outer, go ahead, pull it apart, check out the timestamp, verify the inner, and there you go, you have a secure protocol. Cool, and so that is the, uh, the, the patch process experience that we had with one medical device manufacturer. Awesome. So the next thing we're gonna talk about is communication protocols, and the reason why I bring this up is I actually talked to some of the 
device manufacturers next door, and uh, one of the guys, we had a dialogue, and I was like, wow, this is really close to our system. And I was like, yeah, I've seen this in multiple places. You must be doing okay. Uh, here's my card. You should call me. Uh, but it's okay. So we're going to talk through this process. So let me, let me take a step back. We see three beautiful images on here that I did not make, but they look great. And we're going to talk about what, you know, what the relationship is. So uh, in this particular case, we have a personal medical device. This is a wearable. It's on you all the time. Uh, we have a mobile device, so smartphone, Android, uh, iOS. This is going to be in communication, direct communication with this particular device. And we still have our cloud component. So one might imagine, well, how the heck are these things going to communicate? And where is your trust boundary? And those are all fantastic questions. Before I get ahead of myself, I'm going to hit the right arrow a couple of times because I'm going to mess up these transitions. Come on, is there one more? No, that looks like it. Yep. Um, cool. They're all up there. They're just not showing there. So let's think about it this way. Um, you're going to have this uh, smartphone. Smartphone's going to configure the actuation of this particular device. Uh, we're going to make some assumptions. Close physical proximity. You might imagine, well, what protocols would you use there? BLE, of course. Um, and then, uh, you know, there might be, uh, this is all patient configurable, but the medical device, since it's doing actuation, it's also doing sensing, right? And so uh, we have to imagine medical devices are oftentimes like, I hate when people argue it can't have verbo or like really good robust hardware because let's face it, Raspberry Pis have four gigs of RAM now. Anything can have good hardware. Um, but the argument is, is that, well, these won't have a NIC and I can buy that. So, you know, it might have a Bluetooth uh, BLE uh, module such that it can talk and some driver around it, but it doesn't have Wi-Fi, So it's not connecting to uh, your wireless routers, which also makes a lot of sense too. How would you, for example, have a wearable and like, oh, connect to the Wi-Fi for me? It's a kind of a contrived thing that you may have to do. Uh, so what we need in this particular architecture is that this personal medical device has to communicate to the cloud over the, the smartphone. Now, I can tell you, you're all hackers. I bet you a bunch of you actually have lineage OS or something equivalent. Your phones are probably rooted. Don't trust the package managers. Because you don't, they're, they're signed, of course. Cydia signs all of its packages, but who the heck uploaded those things? And so from the perspective of the medical device manufacturer, that's not trusted. This should never be trusted. It's not even semi-trusted. It's like, it's great, uh, you can configure your device, it's on you, it's cool, we run an application, but if there's any uh, personal health information or PHI, don't trust that particular device to look at it because it could siphon it off, send it somewhere else, right? So now we're going to look at, uh, so let me, let me draw these arrows out too. There we go. That way I don't miss any of them. I think that's pretty good. Right. So uh, what would you do then? Uh, you, have a, you have a BLE connection. Well, if you know anything about the BLE specification, there are maybe four. I think it's four. It might be five. Don't quote me. There's authentication mechanisms that you could do at the transport layer to secure these two devices. Well, uh, Requirements and design actually lead how we think about our risks and our controls and what the system actually ends up being. And so in this particular case, it was, well, that's great. I mean, we can have a pairing protocol, we can have a pin, but that seems arduous. And actually, we don't want it to impact the patient experience. We want these devices just to work. So the anecdote here is if anyone's ever had a Bluetooth speaker and you go to connect to it and somehow your friend's phone starts playing to it and then they disconnect, someone else disconnects and the whole thing just turns off, it's because, well, it's kind of garbage and everyone hates trying to pairing to pair these devices, right? So in this particular case, what we had come up with was a scheme where we can have end-to-end -end encryption uh, and authentication between these two devices because, well, the manufacturer has access to this device when they configure it. They have access. They put the boards in, they put the, the plastic pieces together, and maybe they 3D print it. And that gives us a lot of power in terms of how we might write a cryptographic uh, protocol. Now, I'm saying write the cryptographic protocol. Don't misquote me. We're not inventing AES 2.0 because that's just silly and it will be broken. We're using the ciphers and the algorithms and key sizes that are recommended and mandated by standards. But we're using them in an intelligent way to create a hybrid scheme that just works. Now, uh, since I said that we're creating our own cryptographic protocol, the most fantastic part was to be able to use that same protocol to, from this device, talk to the cloud, over the phone, without the phone seeing the data. And that is what we actually came up with. So let me just hit next to see. I, I did miss a bullet. That's fine. That looks like it's okay. Yeah, you need to be connected before you go to the cloud. That's good. And uh, let me see. Yeah, so I'm gonna, I clicked through these because I actually want to do them in a different format or a different order. I'm going to talk about the, the personal medical device and the cloud first. All right? You are in the configuration stage. How might you bootstrap the security? Well, one way uh, is you could take you know, the medical device as you're putting it together 
you want to do secure key generation, right? So let's hope, I mean, modern architecture, if we're, if we're doing, um, what is it? If we're doing ARM processor, there's things like Trust Zone, crypto coprocessors, those types that you can put into this device to securely generate your key pair. What that means is that you have a good uh, sense of your security protocol and how these things are generated. They're unique for every device. Never, never hard code a key because you'll get owned and then you'll end up at a talk here and everyone will laugh at you. So you want to generate your key this way. Uh, you're going to have a key pair. It's asymmetric. The cloud also has its own asymmetric key pair. And what you're doing, since you're in the uh, trusted manufacturing process, you do key exchange. You, uh, you exchange two public keys with one another, and this is going to allow you to sort of bootstrap the end-to-end -end encryption process. And glossing over some of the details, we might argue like, oh, well, asymmetric key pair, one's for authentication, one's for encryption. Yes, it's also a hybrid-based approach, so there's going to be a symmetric key. I won't talk much about that, and I have three minutes, so I should go really quickly. Uh, but the idea is that since you've bootstrapped this, once you go to put these things online, you're going to have a pairing protocol with that phone. What that phone's going to do is first, it's going to pair to the cloud as a part of the process. They're going to generate a key pair. It's going to exchange public keys with the cloud. The reason why you're doing this is because the public key that gets inside cloud, you want to sign it. The reason why you want to sign it is that when this pairing protocol happens between these two devices, you need to verify that that phone's actually trusted. Like, do you have an account? Do you own the device? Did you talk to the cloud? And once that is done, since you've already pre-established the secrets between the cloud and the medical device, lo and behold, you can do end-to-end -end encryption. So you can do, for example, an elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman key exchange. Let's make it perfect, uh, perfect forward secrecy in it, and uh, we can encrypt data, send it back and forth. It can be PHI, PII, and the mobile device is none the wiser. Yep, and we get a giant green mark, which is great. So I'm going to breeze through this one for three minutes. I think I can do it. Well, he said three minutes. Yeah, yeah I'll be quick, I promise. <laughs> all right, for this one, uh, medical device, uh, the, the, the issues that came up were all access controls, so physical access controls, maybe network-based access controls. Uh, the problem is, you know, you might only have a single set of access uh, credentials. Your admin, your root, you have access to everything, that's probably bad. Uh, unsecured uh, protocols, such as FTP, Telnet, don't want those. Uh, anyone can eavesdrop on the data and mess with it, not good. USB port for maintenance and configuration, well, this is just another attack surface that someone can tap into. Uh, direct access to therapeutic controls, well, you know, if an attacker has a physical access, they're probably going to break it with a hammer first, but we like to mitigate as many risks as we possibly can, so maybe we put a pin uh, to authenticate the user to touch the control pad. And finally, just separating clinical mode and operational mode. When this thing is doing its business for the patient, you shouldn't be able to do a firmware update because that is just going to hose everything and be a whole mess of problems. Yeah, so I talked about all these. That means that slide goes quickly. So fixes, as you might imagine, there's common, basically common sense, right? Get rid of unauthenticated, unencrypted protocols. Use SSH, for example. Use TLS uh, if you have HTTP. Uh, looking at it, um, also requiring physical access uh, requires having a unique pen for every single device. Let's not have default hard-coded credentials and secrets because, again, if you figure out a pen and someone sets these up, well, then maybe you know the pen for all hundreds of thousands of devices. Probably not a good thing. Uh, the communication functions, uh, you want to be able to partition these by hardware, so isolated worlds. Uh, if you're doing actuation, you probably don't want to be on the same board processor as the thing that's doing your TCP IP stack. Because guess what? Vulnerabilities happen in drivers. That's kernel-level exploit. You get root on the box, but you don't, again, want to affect the patient. Lastly, uh, like I said before, if you're in clinical mode, you shouldn't do a firmware update. So these things need to be cleanly isolated such that one cannot impact the other. And that fixes our medical device. And I'll let Avi finish on the last slide. I'm sorry, guys, I went a little over. OK. Um, thanks a lot for that, Mike. So just as you saw, each of these examples showed some pretty straightforward problems and some pretty straightforward solutions, but um, there are so many things that you actually have to keep track of. The complexity can be really high when you look at everything together as a holistic system. So it's really not just the firmware, although the firmware is really important, but it's the entire system. Um, I think that this industry is very lucky that it has really top-notch regulators. The people that we've spoken with on behalf of our clients um, are super technical people and very smart. And unlike some other industries where the regulators maybe aren't quite uh, up to par, here they really are good. And so that's something that the medical device manufacturers actually have in their favor. 
And so I think we're out of time, but thanks a lot for your time and attention. All right, everybody. Welcome. Thank you for attending my talk, Hacking Cryptocurrencies. My name is Mark Nesbitt. I'm an application security engineer at Coinbase. Um, in the blockchain village at DEF CON, you all probably know Coinbase, but for those who may be unfamiliar, Coinbase is a digital currency wallet and platform where merchants and consumers can transact with cryptocurrency. Some of my recent priorities at, at my job have been security support for systems that integrate with cryptocurrency networks, for instance, our hot wallets. And second has been security assessments and mitigations for supported digital assets. As you know, you may know, Coinbase is adding a large number of assets to the platform, and we review each and every one of them for its security qualities. I'm going to have two main sections to this talk. First, I'm going to talk about what I mean by hack when I say hacking cryptocurrencies. Second section, I'm going to talk about 51% double spending attacks. I'm going to walk through some real-world examples of this, then I'm going to talk about some observed patterns and characteristics of the attacks and the attackers that we've been able to uncover. First, what do we mean by hack? With every new technology, a new exploit vector is born. New processor developments like speculative execution or out-of-order execution were exciting boosts to processor speed and also enabled the famous Spectre and Meltdown vulnerabilities. Blockchains are no different. They represent a new technology, which means there are new ways to hack. I'll explain one of them here. Most everyone here is likely familiar with the CIA framework for security. C for confidentiality, I for integrity, and A for availability. Examining a system for these three properties can give a great start into understanding the security and threats against the system. I'll describe how 51% attacks work in a bit more detail, but for the time being, it's important to realize that a cryptocurrency is a network of nodes that communicate to one another according to a protocol. The nodes on the network store a copy of the blockchain, which is a public, shared database and the network protocol allows nodes to communicate state information about the blockchain. Nearly every blockchain has an authorization model based on public key cryptography. The state of data in the blockchain can usually only be updated when the proper digital signature is provided. An example of this would be sending bitcoins from one person to another. The sender must authorize this state change by signing the send transaction. A wallet is an example of software that performs this action, meaning that it's built on top of the blockchain. Wallets hold private keys and can submit transactions to the blockchain. As you could realize, because a blockchain is a shared public database, anyone can choose to build a wallet application on top of a blockchain, so there are a wide variety of wallets. They have their own CIA to examine. Many of the hacks you hear about in the media are a failure of confidentiality in the parts of wallets. Peter mentioned that just a few minutes ago in his talk. Um, if the private keys are leaked, anyone can authorize transactions for actions controlled by those keys. Another interesting wallet failure mode is integrity failure. Peter also mentioned this. If an attacker can manipulate the recipient of a transaction prior to signing, there's no need for the attacker to have access to the private keys. All of this is pretty standard application security work. There's a lot of history in how to secure these types of systems. A large component of my day-to-day -day work is doing that, ensuring confidentiality and integrity in these systems. For completeness, I've given two examples of availability failure that might happen. These aren't really hacks because the attackers don't really get the funds. But this talk is not about wallets. I'm talking about hacking cryptocurrency itself, a new vector. Let's see where the CIA framework can get us there. I define the blockchain as a shared database. Thus, it's entirely transparent, and there really isn't very much confidentiality. Jumping down to availability, this is also not really going to be a focus because it's not a huge concern for anyone except for the protocol designers. This concerns matter. Concerns about the availability of blockchains have driven much of what's known as the scaling debate. If protocol design makes the resources required to run and participate in the, in the network too expensive, it may impact the availability of the information, which could have many negative impacts on the network. Violating the integrity of a blockchain is what I want to talk about. It's a way to hack cryptocurrency. The integrity has become, recently become a bigger focus across the industry. As I mentioned before, I work for Coinbase, a major cryptocurrency exchange. Exchanges make an ideal target for all kinds of attacks, but especially 51% attacks, which I'll dive into in the second part. First off, exchanges hold a lot of cryptocurrency on behalf of their customers. That's an obvious enough reason for them to be good targets. There are other characteristics, though. For instance, liquidity and volume. 
Being able to trade one cryptocurrency into a different one can be very advantageous to an attacker. Speed. Exchanges often credit funds to attackers on a relatively short time frame and allow for nearly instant sends. An attack could therefore happen very quickly. Remote interaction. An attacker can execute many of these attacks from across the ocean, perhaps from North Korea. And in some cases, anonymity. I want to take a second to talk about this. Many popular media descriptions of cryptocurrency seem to describe it with some magical anonymity qualities, which it doesn't have. This is especially true if you have an authenticated session with an exchange such as Coinbase. Coinbase strives to be the most trusted exchange in the entire cryptocurrency industry, and as part of that, we're heavily regulated. And a large part of that regulation involves the lengths we go to ensure every customer on our platform has gone through KYC AML. KYC, know your customer, so we know their identities, and that's important for AML, anti-money laundering. Any exchange that doesn't have these strict requirements would obviously be more attractive to a potential attackers. So if you can find some sort of if you can find some sort of vulnerability, whether that's subverting a protocol or a more traditional wallet-style vulnerability, um, as I described earlier, this makes an exchange a great target. So, 51% double spend attacks. As I mentioned before, a blockchain is a shared database stored by all nodes on the network and accessible to anyone. For this database to be useful, there must be a way to update it. Blockchains are append-only databases and are updated in batches of transactions. Each batch of transactions that's added to the blockchain is typically called a block. So you could visualize the blockchain like this with the expectation that a block n plus one would shortly be added. But that raises a question, who defines block n plus one? The database is shared and distributed, so there must be some way of coming to consensus among the network participants about what constitutes this block. The answer to this question is that it depends on the cryptocurrency. This is one of the major defining characteristics of cryptocurrencies, and a lot of new cryptocurrencies have innovative methods for adding to the blockchain. For instance, Ripple and Stellar have a concept of validator nodes that use a voting consensus protocol to determine which transactions are in this block. EOS goes through regular elections where these nodes are, known, are called block producers and they take turns defining the block. Tezos and Cosmos, the node chosen is based on its stake. It's a proof of stake network and stake is the proportion of network funds owned. Lastly, Bitcoin and Ethereum. The node that first successfully solves a cryptographic puzzle defines the block. This is known as proof of work. It's known as proof of work because the solution to the cryptographic puzzle has to be brute forced, which takes considerable computational effort. This is called mining. Mining a block is when a node discovers the solution to the proof of work puzzle. Here's a key fact about proof of work networks. Anyone can bring their computation to the table, and if they produce a valid block, they have extended the blockchain. Since this is a distributed and permissionless way of extending the blockchain, it's possible that the network will encounter multiple versions of the blockchain. To resolve these versions and reach consensus on a single version, the network deems the version with the most work to be the canonical blockchain. I'll explain what I mean by that. This diagram shows the blockchain tilted 90 degrees with the blocks separated. Block n plus 1 will be added on top of the other blocks. As before, each block contains some number of transactions. Suppose a node with its computational power solves the, the cryptographic puzzle, mines a block. It broadcasts the block that solves this puzzle to the network and all transactions in the block are added to the canonical history of transactions, that is, added to the blockchain. But suppose a second block is found simultaneously. How does the network decide which block contains the transactions that are to be added? The rule is that the nodes on the network define the series of blocks with the most work as the canonical history. So if either of the two blocks gets another block extending on top of it, there will be more accumulated work on that branch, which makes it the canonical blockchain. This means that there's never a case where a block is truly finalized on the chain. If enough work decides to extend from a different block, once that branch has outworked the rest of the chain, it will be the canonical history. The situation on this slide is called a reorg, short for reorganization, and the grayed out blocks are known as orphan blocks, and they're not part of the blockchain. Let me repeat a key fact. Any actor that can outwork the rest of the network is the sole arbiter of which among all possible valid transactions are the ones that are added to the canonical history. So if there's any kind of network instability where blocks were not always immediately shared with the network after they were found, or if some actor was deliberately holding back blocks that had been discovered, we could see something like what's shown on this slide, where the blocks on the left are hidden from the network. But if they were shared and made public, the network would switch over to these blocks and define them as the canonical chain, orphaning all the blocks that were previously the most recent additions to the chain. 
Because of this potential for instability of the most recent blocks, anyone receiving a transaction should wait for several blocks to be found after the block that contained their transaction to lower the chance that the block containing their transaction will be orphaned. An analogy that I found interesting is that the most recent blocks are like recently fallen leaves in the fall. They can blow around and change and shift. After a while, they might get waterlogged and not move very much, and after even longer, they'll decompose into mud, clay, and eventually rock. You can adjust your risk by, by selecting the number of blocks that you wait until you consider a transaction finalized. This is known as the confirmation requirement, and each recipient of a transaction decides on their own level. So imagine we had the following situation where Coinbase supports a fictional coin, McCoin, abbreviated MUH. Suppose the confirmation requirement for MUH is three blocks. Coinbase also supports BTC, Bitcoin, and MUH trading. Any customer of Coinbase could have the following intention. Create a transaction T that sends coins from the customer's wallet to Coinbase. Wait for three blocks, after which Coinbase will consider the transaction finalized, and Coinbase will credit these funds to the, the customer's Coinbase account. Then the customer may, may want to sell the MUH for BTC and then send the BTC wherever they like, off-site, off the platform. This is a completely normal pattern of behavior for a customer to take. Let's imagine instead, though, that the customer is actually an attacker, an attacker with a special ability to outwork the rest of the network. The attacker creates transaction T, sending some amount of MUH onto Coinbase. Suppose T is quickly included in a block by some miner on the network. Simultaneously, the attacker will create a second transaction, T prime. Notice that T prime sends the same funds that were sent in T, address at A1. And however, T prime sends those funds to address A2. T and T prime could never exist in the same blockchain together. As soon as one is included, the other would be invalid, an invalid transaction because the funds were already spent. The attacker begins to mine in secret and includes T prime in the secret block, but not T. The space on the right with the gray background is local to the attacker, and the network cannot see this block. Remember that we've assumed the attacker can outwork the rest of the network, meaning the attacker can produce blocks faster than the rest of the entire network. So in order to do anything with the MUH on Coinbase, it first needs to have three confirmations, because that's what it takes to be credited. The attacker does not sit idly by and continues to secretly produce blocks. The network also produces blocks, but unknown to anyone, it's not keeping pace with the secret blocks produced by the attacker. Finally, the network produces the third block, three confirmations on the transaction, the attacker is now credited with the MUH and can sell it for BTC, which could then be sent off the Coinbase platform. So the BTC could be withdrawn, it's, it's, out, it's now in the attacker's control. Remember, nothing seen publicly thus far is anything out of the ordinary. But now the attacker can execute the attack the attacker can reveal the blocks to the network. These blocks have more accumulated work than the existing top three blocks, so according to the network rules, a reorg will occur, the attacker's blocks now representing the canonical chain. The top three blocks that we've previously seen publicly now become orphaned blocks. They're no longer part of the blockchain and the transactions defined in them are now no longer part of the canonical history. And notice the T was in those blocks, meaning that there's no longer a transaction to Coinbase in the blockchain anymore. But the BTC, has already been withdrawn. There was a withdrawal, there was no deposit, AKA a theft. The ability to do this is directly related to how difficult it is for an attacker to overpower the network. The more work being put into solving the proof of work puzzles on the network, the more difficult it will be for any one entity to marshal the resources and overwhelm the network. Note that this, the danger of this attack comes when you accept a deposit directly from the attacking entity. In this example, BTC was provided in exchange for MUH. If the attacker can't get something irrevocable in exchange for this vulnerable coin, the attack is invaluable. This is one of the reasons that an exchange is a great target for this attack, liquidity. The thing about 51% attacks is they're pretty obvious if you know what to look for. Each block in the blockchain is identified by its hash, providing a unique fingerprint. If the hash of block at height n changes from what it was before, that block was replaced with a new block. There must have been some kind of reorg. Small reorgs, shallow depth reorgs, happen on a regular basis. This is primarily driven by the fact that many nodes across the world are attempting to find blocks. There is some amount of latency in the, in the network. So there will be race conditions where multiple blocks are found simultaneously and eventually only one will be in the blockchain. However, deeper reorgs do allow 
for attacks if they are, exceed the confirmation limit of the service. You can inspect a reorg to look for the presence of T and T prime. Two transactions are double spends if they send the same money but to different places. They can't exist in the chain together, but they might exist in competing branches of the chain. This is the smoking gun that a reorg is malicious. Money that was sent to one place is effectively clawed back when the new blocks are revealed. From the attacker's point of view, the attack has two components. One is the ability to form the secret chain, which requires majority hash power. Two, the ability to create transactions T and T prime. You're going to need some amount of the currency itself to do this, and the more coins you have, the bigger the impact of T and T prime. An attacker is also going to need to select a victim. Obviously, the victim must accept the currency, but the victim has to provide something of value that they cannot take back once they realize they've been attacked. So an attacker couldn't sell the coin for US dollars and transfer the US dollars to, the, to a bank account. Not only would that likely expose the attacker's identity, but the bank transfer can usually be reverted. Cryptocurrencies that aren't vulnerable to 51% attacks, however, cannot be reverted. This is another reason why cryptocurrencies exchanges make such good targets for 51% attacks. You can get cryptocurrency from them. Also notice that this attack can be repeated indefinitely until the victim takes defensive action, either by raising the confirmations required on their service or simply shutting down their interaction with this currency. We're going to walk through some real-world examples of 51% double-spending attacks. The one we'll go into most detail is the 51% attack on Ethereum Classic. In early January was when this happened. And because it's an asset that Coinbase supports, we had monitoring systems in place which alerted in real time to the attack, allowing us to pause interaction with the blockchain. I'll talk about how this attack unfolded. The ETC network is minding its own business, mining blocks as usual, adding transactions to the blockchain. Then all of a sudden, seven new blocks show up out of nowhere. And these seven blocks don't extend from the most recent block, but dig down five blocks back, orphaning four blocks. 12 hours later, it happens again six new blocks orphaning five previously discovered blocks. I called both of these, trans or, uh, these, these events practice attacks. And the reason for that is because they were just reorgs. There was never a pair of transactions T and T prime where the same money was spent in one place on the first branch to a different place in the second branch. We hadn't observed reorgs of this depth ever on Ethereum Classic. And so it would have been premature to call these attacks. But once we were seeing these, we were, we were alerted that something unusual was going on. And, and three hours later, there was a very deep reorg. 74 new blocks showed up all at once, orphaning 57 blocks. And in, these, in this reorg, there was a T and T prime, where the same money was sent, spent first to one place and then to another. This was on a Saturday night. Our on-call engineers responded, validated the alert, and turned off ETC send and receive functionality. Ethereum Classic isn't the only attack, uh, isn't the only successful 51% attack. It's the one we're most familiar with because it's the one we were closest to. But I'm going to talk about two others that we've looked into closely. BTG is Bitcoin Gold and VTC is Vertcoin. But those aren't the only other two. There have been others as well. Some of the observed patterns we see from, from looking into these three different attacks. It's important to realize blockchains are public. This means that a 51% attack is a pretty noisy attack. It leaves all kinds of good data for understanding the attackers. I'm going to walk through just a few of the things that we've observed, but they really only scratch the surface of what you can learn about an attacker. These, leave, these attacks leave such a trail of damage, you could say, behind them, that I don't think it would be very long before we're very good at learning quite a bit about attackers of this, of this sort. This chart shows all 17 of the reorgs that we were able to find in our research into the Bitcoin gold attack and how much Bitcoin gold was taken in each one of them. Notice the first two didn't take anything. This is Vertcoin, VTC. The first five took nothing. And notice the first two in Ethereum Classic also took nothing. Remember what I said, the 51% attack has two parts. First, being able to build the secret chain, and then properly creating transactions TNT prime. So what did the attackers do? They broke the problem down into those two steps, made sure they could build an attack chain before they worried about building TNT Prime. Even criminals need integration tests. Criminals are also not perfect. 
These are the same three charts as before all in one slide. You may have noticed that there were gaps when I first showed these to you. They're a little harder to explain, I think. But as far as I can tell, the attackers did a bunch of work in these cases to reorg the chain, but they didn't put in a TNT prime. So they didn't cash in on any double spending. For the first few attacks, it makes sense to assume that they're practicing. But once they've proven they can do that, these just look like mistakes to me. There's also an invest exploit decision that an attacker has to make. Imagine yourself in the attacker's shoes and you kind of have an interesting dilemma. Once you have the hash power to successfully attack the network, any additional resources you have should be directed towards owning the currency itself to amplify the impact of TNT Prime. In other words, the cost of the attack and the payoff of the attack are not functions of one another. So as an attack progresses, you're accumulating resources if you're being successful. Should you reinvest these or should you take them off the table? You know how I said blockchains are very transparent. We can observe the decisions they made clear as day. In the Bitcoin gold attack and in the vast majority of the Vertcoin attack, attackers are mostly in exploit mode. They have X amount of coins and every time they attack the network, they perform a double spend, they get X payoff. But in the Ethereum Classic attack, and oddly in these first three Vertcoin attacks, the attackers seem to be also in invest mode. This makes me think that the Ethereum Classic attackers may have been planning to continue attacking because I would, I would expect an optimal attack profile to include a period of invest followed by a flat period of exploit. There's also something really interesting about the Ethereum Classic data. Notice how it steps up in pairs. The first double spend was a for a tiny amount, also probably a test. You can see in, in, at, at number four and five, they're roughly the same size. But then the size roughly doubled for six and seven, almost doubled again for eight and nine, stepped up significantly for 10 and 12, with 11 looking like it may have been another mistake, and then doubled again for 13 and 15, with 14 being another possible mistake. It seems to me that the attacker was balancing, investing, and exploiting. Bigger and bigger payoffs every time, but you never know when the party is going to stop. And so you want to take money off the table while you do it. That's what this looks like to me. This is also really profitable for the attackers. You can see our estimates on how much the double spends were worth and our estimates on how much the mining cost would have been to perform these attacks. You can see the profit margins, it's, it's absurd. Our mining cost estimates were also fairly conservative. We're also not even factoring the money made from the mining reward. The attacker mined valid, valid blocks. Those blocks come with a mining reward, just like regular miners would have gotten. I'm not even factoring that in. They're approximately on the same order of magnitude as the mining cost, however. But the mining reward and leftover coins from the attack do typically get sold. So attackers are cashing in on this. In the case of Bitcoin Gold, it looked like about 75% of the mining rewards were moved shortly after the attack, probably to an exchange, probably to liquidate them, probably so that they could have coins that were unaffiliated with the attack. In Vertcoin and Ethereum Classic, all mining rewards were moved very shortly after the attack. Analyzing the time of, the day, time of day that the attacks happen is another route to understanding the attackers. I've mapped the times of the attacks on this slide. It's hard to draw meaningful conclusions from Bitcoin Gold and Vertcoin. There does seem to be some clustering, but it's not too dramatic, and they do have pretty much 24-hour coverage during the attack. Ethereum Classic, however, obviously has a time of day pattern in the attack. And that one outlier that you see was actually the very first practice attack. So it's, it's a different case anyway. If such a major pattern does emerge, I would consider there to be two major hypotheses about what could be driving it. The attacker's preferred waking hours or the time zone the attacker considers most damaging to the victim, probably at night. Also note that the Ethereum Classic attacks and most of the Vertcoin attacks happened over weekends again, probably because that is when it is most difficult for an exchange to respond. When doing timing analysis, note that these attacks can sometimes take hours for the attacker to build the chain, meaning the attacker doesn't have the full luxury of choosing their timing and may be forced to work around the clock. As an example, the longest Bitcoin gold attack chain was 27 blocks, which probably took them over four hours to mine. The longest Vertcoin attack chain was 310 blocks, which probably took them over 12 hours to mine. As I said earlier, the risk for 51% attacks is in accepting money directly from an attacker. An attacker will want to find an exchange where it's possible to hide their identity from the exchange. In the case of Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin Gold was delisted from Bittrex shortly after the attack, and the Bitcoin Gold dev team put out a statement 
claiming that Bit Bittrex was a victim of the attack and that explained their delisting. I don't know who the victims were of the Vertcoin attack. In the case of Ethereum Classic, three exchanges all put out statements acknowledging that they were targets. KYC can help prevent an attack. Another pattern, the attacks stop after they're publicized. Cockroaches hate the light. Bitcoin Gold was a three-day attack. It was publicized on the third day. Vertcoin was nearly two months. The day it was publicized was the day of the last attack. And Ethereum Classic, also a three-day attack. The third day was the day it was publicized. The last pattern I want to talk about is also interesting. We've noticed that attackers commonly don't place their TNT Prime transactions in the optimal blocks. Consider the example of the very first Ethereum Classic double spend attack that I talked about before, where 74 blocks were orphaned, or 74 blocks did the orphaning of 57 blocks. This would be the ideal block for an attacker to have placed their transaction T in. It's the deepest block that was orphaned, which would have given transaction T 57 confirmations at the time of the attack. Instead, T was placed 13 blocks higher, where it only had 44 confirmations at the time of the attack. Transaction T was not the deepest orphan block. That means the attacker did the, amount, did the amount of work required to orphan a transaction with 57 confirmations, but only for a transaction that had 44. This happens in the vast majority of the double spins that we've observed, which is frankly very puzzling. So let's review. I define hacking by attacking the integrity of the blockchain. New technologies, new ways to hack. I described a 51% devil spend attack, then I walk through real-world real examples of these attacks, along with the patterns that we've observed. That concludes my talk. Does anyone have any questions? I'm, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't quite hear you. Uh, okay, so the data of all the Reog chain, do you have a spray Yeah, so um, I think, let me, let me make sure I'm understanding your question correctly. When a block is orphaned, is that data lost? Is that what you're getting at? So, so yeah, you have transactions that are connected and then the Reog happening, and you know, the Reog happening, and 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 the Reog happening, in its database will say, this is an orphan block, but it'll hold it. And so you can still query your node for that data. Your node had to be around at the time because those blocks aren't being shared around on the network. But if your node saw it, your node has it. Yeah? So you mentioned that, uh, hey, I'm providing a block that lost. It's not exactly, but I think they're probably close, especially in, in um, smaller market cap coins where general purpose hardware can be moved to arbitrage uh, the mining reward. This is way more profitable. Um, if someone's gonna, if if someone is going to take a deposit for a very weak amount of confirmations and give you something incredibly valuable for it, it's just it's just so trivial to to claw back the original deposit. Um, I, I don't I don't really think they are. <laughs> Yeah, well, yes. When when they when they mine their blocks, those are just those are ordinary nodes and the easiest way for them to do it is to not even modify the software, just disconnect it from the internet, mine your block, you create your transactions and then once you you look locally, you see that you've outpaced the main chain, you just connect to the internet and then the reorg will happen by itself. How 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 is um, so Coinbase has never lost anything in this sort of attack. Um, we've only seen one attack on a chain that, or on an asset that we support, which was the Ethereum Classic attack. We we noticed it immediately because we were monitoring for this, and we immediately shut down. So the very first, there were, can't remember the number. There were something like fifteen of these reorgs with Ethereum Classic. The the very first one that had a double spend, we alerted and we shut down. So all the subsequent ones, we were offline and they couldn't have attacked us. Okay. Got it. 
so that I I can cause some damage to the exchange. Right? I don't think that's the case for Coinbase, but in other world scenario would that be a damage? So I'm not, I'm not sure I understand your question. I think you're saying if there's a delay on withdrawing from the exchange, that makes it harder to attack the exchange. And you're definitely correct that if there is a delay in withdrawing the exchange, because then the attack could potentially be detected, and before the funds left, you could put a hold on them. But that's not true in all cases. You can transfer onto an exchange, sell, and transfer off, and that is a very common pattern and without, without these long delays. Delays are, are something, it's one of the pain points for a lot of customers in the cryptocurrency industry. They don't want to sit and wait for five days for seemingly no reason. So it's, it's a constant balance to, to get that number right. And the, but the faster it is, the better the opportunity for an attacker. Any other questions? What's, what's that? Once the attacker transfers out of Coinbase, it's out of our control. So then if they can claw back that original on send, then they got away with it, essentially. Which has never happened to Coinbase, just to be clear. Any other questions? All right. Thank you, everybody. And that's going to wrap it up, folks. We will see you Saturday night for show number 171 where a crash will join me and we'll have uh, more on tap. We'll talk about the latest things and news. You know what we do until uh, then. Take care of yourself. Okay, little dirty nappy headed East Atlanta nigga father said it I was a force. 44 Hank Aaron Chrome wanna make it home, then get out the porch. Let a nigga cover faded for I had the faded nigga at the faded fort. It's tomato, what's a model? Either way, the boy the greatest play it, I won't say it no more. I was just fucked up, I was just down, down bad. I had to tighten the fuck up, but I'm here for the crown. Board of education versus brown. I was board of education, left the town, fuck a resume and fuck a cap and gown, fuck a background, check background. When I get the check, nigga, that's now. I was just fucked up, I was just down, down bad. I had to tighten the Fuck up, but I'm here for the crown, crown, oh shit I was just fucked up, I was just down, down bad I had to tighten the fuck up, but I'm here for the crown, 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 crown. I was just fucked up, I was just down, down bad Picked up the pad, pick up the slack Pick up the litter, don't litter no bag Boxy been picking up racks, raps I'm in clear The act of you too, and I'm back in the booth Got them hacking the shackers, they lacking the juice Niggas dropping the body, I'm shacking the fool Activists drew down the side of your face, we ain't jacking it We ain't dabbing them fools, get a nap You do just embarrassing, who going crazy like us, no comparison Driven like Marion Jones on the steroids, y'all niggas Slow as a heroin high. Y'all had a year, y'all had a year, y'all had a year, but you let it go by. I was just fucked up, I was just down, down bad. I had to tighten the fuck up, but I'm here for the crown, crown. Oh shit, I was just fucked up, I was just down, down bad. I had to tighten the fuck up, but I'm here for the crown, crown, crown. crown. Dreamville, head how to bitch, we came for nothing, just like the Big Bang Theory. The poverty stain kept the pain buried and covered the shame with a dream. We would have fortune and fame, a million the bank, chameleon paint turned cranberry. Now little Jermaine got the same stories, that boy had a saint, bitch. St. Mary's go all hell, King Cole, first of his name, long may rain, the boy got a throne, but you know it in a game, good nigga, I was born in the same, pressure cooker, that's been known to bust a lump of cola, make a diamond, too sick, me and Rota Reaganomics, crew sick, me to go to state and rhyming, oh God, you could die today, so be hell to pay, I'ma leave and breathe and scheme and testimony, so don't text me, homie, put that knee on it, put a foot up that ass, you a stepping stone, all my niggas ain't getting no sleep, all of my niggas be chasing their dreams, oh, I'm a force of nature, I can't wait the day, I was having problems, till I had to break through all my tattoos, for sure, they ain't never for sure, might get tattooed on to tell your hoe, get the dope, in my time making Love to your thoughts Don't get in line baby Slut up your mind It's a brand new season I'm a righteous heathen I take on the challenge And I leave it bleeding I was down bad Now I'm even Steven And I'm leaving Leaving every fucking weekend oh. I was just fucked up I was just down down bad I had to tighten the fuck up But I'm here for the crown crown Oh shit I was just fucked up I was down, down bad. I had to tighten the fuck up, but I'm here for the crown, crown. Oh shit. I was fucked up. I was down, down bad. I had to tighten the fuck up, but I'm here for the crown, crown, crown. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs>